Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Hey, everyone. Before we start today's show, I want to take a moment to sit with what happened this week. On Tuesday, March 16th, a man went on a rampage at three spas in the Atlanta area, killing eight people six of whom were women of Asian descent. Those victims include Soon Chung Park, Hyun Chung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Young A. Yu, Sha Jae Tan, Dao Yo Fung, Delena Ashley Yun, and Paul Andre Michelle. You know, there's been a lot of discussion around why this person did this. A lot of curiosity about his motivations, his impulses, his intentions. You hear questions like, what was the root cause of his violence? What drove him to this? And I'd like to present a different question, which is, why do we care? Does it matter why he did it? Is there any discoverable reason that will justify his behavior? White supremacy, racism, sex addiction, mental illness, what most of these mass shooters have in common is that they are often young, white men. And until young, white men are forced to interrogate what it means to be a young, white man, This will continue. And we know this interrogation is not happening because every time there is a mass shooting, the media goes, why did he do it? What could possibly compel him to do such a thing? In this country, we've been led to believe they, by simply being young, white men, are doing something right. They are afforded innocence in a country that renders just about everyone else a threat. But make no mistake, they are the threat. They were a threat at the school in Sandy Hook, at a Walmart in El Paso, at a movie theater in Aurora, and now, this week, at three spas in Georgia. Three spas. I don't need to know why he did it at one spa got into a car and drove to another spa you need to understand the psychology of what he was thinking in the car 
I don't give a fuck why he did it. There's no information, no fact that matters, no root cause that will lessen the pain their surviving families are going to endure for the rest of their lives. In the show notes for this episode, we've included links to several places you can contribute to. Families trying to cover funeral expenses, activist groups working towards desperately needed gun legislation, organizations focused on ending anti-Asian rhetoric in this country. You can find those on our homepage at talkeasypod.com. It's not enough by a long shot, but it's a start. My heart goes out right now in this moment. All I can think about are the friends and families affected by what happened this week that are going to have to live with what this person did forever. And for the sake of posterity, I offer their names to you. Soon Chung Park, Hyun Chung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Young A Yu, Sha Jie Tan, Dao Yo Feng, Delena Ashley Yun, and Paul Andre Michelle. May their memory live on through all those they touched and through you and I both. We'll be right back. So this week I had the pleasure of sitting with Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. Kimberly is a writer, curator, and activist whose work has been featured in Vanity Fair, Elle, and Glamour. Jenna is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. She's also the co-host of this podcast called Still Processing, as well as a sound healer and Reiki practitioner. Together, Jenna and Kimberly have recently released a book titled Black Futures. It's a massive 540-page collection of images, photos, essay, memes, tweets, poetry by black creators working today. They include contributions from artists, activists, and academics. But above all, this book is, as they write, an archive of collective memory and exuberant testimony, a luminous map to navigate an opaque and disorienting present, an infinite geography of possible futures. If you haven't picked up a copy of this book, I would urge you to do so. In the absence of strolling through museums, this is about as good as it gets. You can find Black Futures wherever you do your reading or on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. And now, without further ado, here is Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. Thanks for being here. Kimberly Drew, Jenna Wortham. How are you both doing? Hello, Sam. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> I would love to start every day with both of you kind of waking me up, just doing a phone call. We love mornings. That's like the most <laughs> feedback we got on the book tour was people who were like, wow, you guys are so cheery, even though it's like 4 a.m. We're like, we've been up since 2. What? We've been up since 2.15. What of it? Let's go. <laughs> I historically dislike mornings, but I like both of you, so... It evens out here. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. At the end of 2020, you two did this interview with Refinery29. You may not remember it, but you did an interview with them. And they offered this question to both of you. And they said, what are each of you demanding from the world of 2021? Mm. Since we now are in 2021, where are you both at 
on on what you want the year to be as we start this? Hmm. I still have very high hopes for a gentle landing. Our mutual friend, the astrologer, Cheney Nichols, said that, you know, by May, June, the planets will be doing some very auspicious things and everything will feel a lot lighter. And I'm really looking forward to that. Like, I think it's still possible. I think it's still in the cards. I mean, all that said, though, it's been a hell of a first quarter. And, you know, the existential crises that I feel like I had last year that many people had that had you taking inventory of your own lives, your own actions, your own contributions, it's still present and it's ramping up even harder because, I mean, things have not slowed down. And I I think personally, when I was asking for more gentle, more softness and for things to be more gentle. It wasn't from the world, which I don't expect. It was more in my own life or from myself. And that's certainly been been true. I have downsized a lot emotionally. <laughs> I, I love to hear that. Kimberly? I don't know. Now after after the first few months of 2021, I'm like, did I see the, you know, the Capitol riots coming? But I do think, or even watching the energy around the Golden Globes, where they could have every single Black creator on TikTok, but they won't change the voting, Mm -hmm. you know, the 87 people who vote on the Golden Globes. And so I think I'm still frustrated in this time of optics. I'm still Mm -hmm. interested in seeing big, bombastic kind of energy. Like there was this like palpable kind of energy Uh, especially last summer, of people just not settling for less. And I still want that, but I don't know that it necessarily looks like brute force. I think it might, Mm -hmm. I might be gamboling more towards what Jenna was saying in terms of like a softness or tenderness or at least an acceptance that there is something that's wrong instead of these like band-aid fixes. Personally, I agree with everything Kimberly said a moment ago too about wanting that feeling of, you know, continued you know, pedal on the gas, that continued pressure. And I I feel it. I feel it in the media criticism that's coming out. I feel it in the way people are still gathering and aggregating and talking and organizing. And I I think it's very present, but I am curious if it's beyond, you know, there was a lot of talk last summer of like protesting fatigue. And then of course there was criticism around that because it's like, who has the luxury, who has the privilege, right? To be tired of fighting for their lives. And I'm very curious if, that momentum and that outrage and that anger that I felt on behalf of so many allies that was actually really maybe one of the things that got me through last year was seeing how hard people were willing to fight and to show up for the most vulnerable among us. I don't know. Is that still there? I mean, that's a question that, not that you could answer it, Sam, or have to, but that's a question that I really do have. Like, are people still gathering Mm -hmm. as much as they can be? I think especially with the Golden Globes or any of the social media activism we see, I've been thinking about how we get past the optics and virtue signaling of representation. And your book, Black Futures, seems to be a good example of next steps. I mean, I was just going to say, you know, the Golden Globes, I think, are a really particular example. And I think... The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, this is not the first year they have been trash. They have been trash. And it's not to say it doesn't matter, but I do think what is interesting to me is to think about what they represent, not necessarily who they pick, right? Like, I'm interested in hearing more about how does the infrastructure of a Golden Globes nomination, comma, and win, let's say, impact someone's career over the long term. And I think until we understand the mechanisms of how much of a gatekeeper they are or are not and like who these people are. Like Jezebel ran a great story about the reason that Emily and Paris won so many nominations is because they appealed to the judges. They flew them out to Paris. I mean, that to me, like when I understand that, I can understand more about them not paying attention to a creator like Michaela Cole. And that helps me put things into context. And then I can decide whether or not you know, like how to organize myself around that information and how to organize myself around that institution. Like, I think we have to also interrogate, I I mean, it's really complicated, right? Like, it's not just about representation. It's about what do these institutions represent and how much does it matter to be included and what power do they really have? I mean, a lot of critics and a lot of film people, reviewers will say like the Golden Globes are actually just optics. Like they don't really matter. And I don't even know if that's true, but that's also was the take on Twitter last night too, which is like this award show does, is, is not going to make or break 
any of the people who aren't here's career, right? And I thought that was really interesting. I was like, is that true? I don't know. I mean, those are the kinds of conversations that feel like institution interrogation feels like the conversation that I want to be having too when we talk about optics, mm-hmm. you know? 10,000%. You two both in your own ways have done this institution interrogation for a long, long time. Jenna, you grew up in Virginia, attend the University of Virginia. You go to Scandinavia, then San Francisco after college. As the tech bubble rapidly expands, Kimberly, you're in Orange, New Jersey. You went to Smith College for art history and African-American studies. Neither of you seem to have deep roots in the work you started doing. Jenna in tech writing at the Times, but first interning at San Francisco Magazine, Kimberly in the curatorial space, but first interning at the Studio Museum in Harlem, then running social for the Met. You both had mentors like Thelma Golden and David Carr, respectively. But again, in the absence of being born into these worlds, you both seem to be forced to define it for yourselves. And I'm curious how you both feel your backgrounds inform that definition and your understanding of these spaces and these gatekeepers that we're talking about. I think that there's more conversation to be had about what it takes for especially young Black folks of our generation to feel that they can take ownership over what they do and what they see for themselves. So would I say that I'm operating in an industry that I didn't grow up in? Not necessarily, um, because I find myself at the intersection of art and design and these presumably very democratic industries that we all in some ways, you know, can take part in. But did I grow up in a family where we owned artwork? No. But did I grow up in a family that ushered that self-determination and I guess self-respect enough to say, I know that I can do this. Mm. But I struggle sometimes in conversations wherein the surprise and success of Black people that there wouldn't be this pathway towards your success um, or that there couldn't be um, a nurturing in your upbringing that would render someone who would grow up to be an adult and say, I can do this. Um, And so I think I'm just reeling a little bit um, from that description because I don't, I don't find my success to be a surprise. Mm. And that's not something that I'm willing to accept from anyone for any reason. And I can only speak for Jen and I and say that we work really hard and I know you do too. We're new friends, Mm. but I think we all fail ourselves when we look at ourselves on paper. So let me rephrase it in a way that's not clumsy then. And my apologies. This comes from a quote you have. When you created your blog, um, Black Contemporary Art, you said in the beginning, I was like, anyone can do it. It's so easy. You just show up Mm. because all you have to go on is optimism. I would spend my weekends in Chelsea going and visiting galleries because they were free. And at the time I was making very little money. It was more about saying you can do this too in this way. Mm. I thought very much and still believe now that most of the time people just need help figuring out where to go and what to see. It's not a surprise to me with either of you, knowing both of your backgrounds deeply, (laughs) that you two landed here. But I think it's, to me, I want to figure out how to expand that accessibility. Well, I think it's happened. You know, I mean, I hear the question that you're asking and I I hear Kimberly's response to it too. And I'm going to try to add a third leg to it, which is, I got my writing career, not really at San Francisco Magazine, although I did learn a lot there. I really got my start in journalism at Wired Magazine, where I was an intern. And it was the first place I'd worked as an intern where you got paid. And even that offered just a degree of respect for the work that we were doing that was important. And I'm trying to do some quick math. I'm like, how many POCs were there when I was there? I may have been the only Black person. And I'm trying to remember if that's true. It feels true in my recollection, but leaving wiggle room because it's been quite some time. But, you know, to Wired's credit, I never felt like an anomaly there. It was so San Francisco, you know, in the 2000s and such a ragtag crew and motley crew and really invigorating. But people never thought that I would be a tech reporter. They never thought that I would understand anything about technology. And I always found that to be really interesting because 
people of color always oversubscribe as early adopters to technologies. And so it's really about how we view certain industries and who belongs there. And certainly in the tech world, and this is still true, you know, black people and people of color and women especially are not in the higher ranks. They're not among most of the employees. They're certainly not the founders, the investors. So I got really interested in kind of thinking about how a certain group of people were being cut out of wealth accumulation and just any kind of ownership or power decision-making capacity for the services we use every single day. But I do think that it was really tough. I mean, I spent a large chunk of my career walking into rooms with like a notepad, right? Or like my recording device and people being like, oh, I'm sorry, there's an interview that's happening here. And being like, oh, that's me. You know, like I'm here to do the interview. And having to enjoy that, choosing to enjoy that surprise and use it as leveraging rather than see it as a personal insult. Because to see it as an insult, I wouldn't still be here today. I would be a husk, (laughs) which I guess I am because, you know, we are in season four of the Panini. But I mean, yeah, I think it's just really fascinating to think about what assumptions we carry forward and what it means. But I will say that now there are so many Black people and people of color who write about technology. And I always think about, I always marvel at the fact when Kimberly and I were doing the vast majority of the press for our book, we were interviewed by Black people. And that is, that is, that's something I didn't even know would could be a possibility for a book. (laughs) Like I just, it didn't even occur to me that we could actually have the privilege of sitting down and talking to people who we actually made the book for about the book. That is new, right? That's unheard of. I don't know if this exactly is what you're getting at, but it is kind of amazing to think about how much things have opened up. feels incredible to witness. What I was trying to get at, and I feel guilty almost now, Kimberly, I'm really, I'm sorry if I am, not my intent to offend or anything like that. But my, what I was trying to get at was kind of this beautiful thing, I thought, which is that in the age of the internet and then the advent of social media, you both seem to be doing this work about expanding access to previously insulated worlds. And I wondered if before you two slid into the DMs, I think one, I don't know who did what, <laughs> but I wonder if you both thought like, oh, that's someone out there kind of doing what I'm doing. Or rather, were you even conscious of the exact exercise of what you were doing? I love that framing. Yay! <laughs> um, <laughs> we got here. We got here. No, I'm sorry. I like definitely woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you're just getting the fangs. Um, no, but no. I, I look like how I do and I phrased it wrong and I'm sorry it's, about that. It's all it is. We all do interviews for a living and know how difficult it is to show up in these ways. Yeah. But I think it's interesting um, as a prospect because there is something that can feel insular and isolating when you're working in the way that Jenna was describing within certain institutions where you do feel, and sometimes it is ingrained in you that you are singular or you are lonely. For me, in relationship to Jenna, I just knew Jenna as this incredible writer and incredible thinker. And I felt like I was always going to be set up to be a person to learn from Jenna I knew that immediately off the bat, but I didn't, I can't say I knew all the multitudes. And it's been such an incredible gift through our friendship and through this process of making this book to be able to learn from her in a more immersive way, in a more expansive way, in a way that isn't just defined by our job titles or the work that we do. Because I think that oftentimes, yeah, we are so geared, I think, as a generation of social media honeys uh, to think about our acolytes being our most defining characteristics. And sometimes who we are in the most quiet moments is the most profound thing. Mm. And I think that the silence that we've shared is just as important. Um, And that's when you can really see all of the universe that someone is holding or all of the spaces that someone is curious about. Like, I think both of us have sat and watched each other become more of the person that we always were, but we didn't always know we could be. And that is such a profound gift. Mm. When do you remember that and seeing that evolution in Jenna? It's hard because I don't want to be like, I, Jenna, I don't, I don't want you to take offense to what I'm going to say. Um, Cause I say it with the like utmost sweetness, mm. but I think even listening to you talk about art has been so amazing because I know how much you love it and I know Mm. how difficult it can be 
in public space to talk about art for some Mm. folks. And I've watched you just push yourself and push yourself to be just so much more vocal about the things that I know you're thinking, you know, like you have such Mm. good taste and you have such good thoughts, but it's been incredible over the past few years to watch you share them Mm -hmm. in a way that like, I just don't know that we were doing that at the beginning. And I think that the the same could be said of other things that I now talk about that I never would have thought that anyone would one care about or that I could be smart enough to do. But that for me is like the the clearest indicator where I'm like, okay, who is like, Oh, there's so much more. There's so much more that you're seeing and thinking. And it's just a gift to be a witness to that. Oh, that's a beautiful reflection. And why would I take it offense? I mean, I, I feel like that's such a, that's so real. And that's, that's also why, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to work on this book with you, it's like, I knew that there was a lot to learn and I am a workaholic in recovery. So I really give myself tasks when I want to, you know, like I needed some, I need structure and framework and a reason to learn about things. And the book was a huge part of wanting to push myself into more, you know, the art world more and to arts criticism more. And yeah, it really grew out of not feeling like the times was necessarily a place where I could explore that. I mean, I was doing some TV writing and I was doing some film writing, but, you know, it's a place that has very, you know, rigorous lanes for any type of criticism or arts writing, right? And so I knew that wasn't necessarily an avenue for me, but I didn't want that to stop me from feeling into these worlds. And I'd come across Kimberly's Tumblr and I had been so amazed and dazzled and like, oh my God, this is everything I've been waiting for. And, you know, I knew how I felt in my body when I would listen to a Janelle Monae album or go see, you know, I think some of the early work I was looking at like Titus Kafour, like Hank Willis Thomas and being like, oh my God, you know, and really, you know, Wangechi Mutu, I remember seeing at, I think probably the Brooklyn Museum and just feeling my entire self, like something just all of a sudden come online in this way. And that feeling was an indication like, yes, this is my next assignment, whatever that looks like. And then I just had to figure out how is that going to live and how's that going to come together? So that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I felt it in my body before I knew it was a thing I even knew how to talk about. Well, it came together in a diner in Chelsea. R.I.P. Empire. Oh, I think it might be back though. It's a resilient. Oh my God. It's a resilient yeah. venue. We have to go <laughs> then when it's safe, because or at least to a drive-by. <laughs> Memories. Memories. Just a drive-by. We won't go in to eat. We'll just wave. I'm not eating inside. <laughs> Hell no. No. But I will wave from the road. I will wave from the road. When you two are looking back at yourselves then, which I think is around five or six years ago, mm-hmm. and you think about the people you are now, what do you see as those two women in that moment wanting to make something? Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. 
This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Clueless. <laughs> <laughs> we had no idea. We had no idea. That is so true. We really didn't have any idea. But it was it was something that happened that was really infectious and something that I wish for everyone mm. to sit down with someone new and know that at the very least are able to learn from each other. Highly recommend, 10 out of 10 recommend finding people you can learn from. And then beyond that, I don't know. I mean, it's it's so weird because like obviously the book is a physical thing that exists now, but I still sometimes sit in disbelief because there have been so many different iterations of the project, what we thought we could do, times when we didn't think we could do it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, five years ago or six years ago, really, I guess, we sat down in Empire Diner and decided to make a book, but there's just... You know, no one tells you how hard making a book is for one and how long of a life cycle it has. And I think we just really do take it a day at a time. And it's incredible that it came to life. It was so difficult and it was so much work. And what's incredible about the book is the work isn't done. You know, like so much of the book itself is a prompt and it's it's a finite object of 540 some pages that could actually be a million times that size and still not contain the multitudes of everything that could go into that book with regards to Black Futures. And when I hold the book, I mean, I feel our sense of optimism, determination, all the things that have come up in this conversation. Like, I really feel like we could not have anticipated, A, how much the book would have changed our lives, B, how much we would have changed each other's lives, and what would have just happened from, I mean, both of us, really grew tremendously during that time in our own ways. You know, we just came into ourselves in such a different way. And then this book comes out. So it's a wild thing to look back. But it's nice to have a benchmark too, because I am I think I'm becoming more aware too of how dilated time can feel, especially like right now, like a day feels like a year, like the last year feels like a blink. And so it's really nice to have this concrete evidence that we lived through a time and made a thing. Kimberly, you tweeted something that I liked recently, which was of this moment, everyone's asking just like a little too much mm-hmm. right now. And and Jenna, you said that you are a, a recovering workaholic, which I, I guess that means you're not a workaholic now or you're trying to... No, in recovery, always going to be a workaholic. Yeah. I'm wondering for you two, because you both are still going, how are you two really doing not well sam not well i mean today is a bright day i'm really relishing i made a really beautiful cup of intelligentsia coffee this morning and my mocha pot like i really really try to dial into the simplest pleasures of the day before i get into the day and i'm not trying to be facetious i'm just it it really is difficult to grapple with how hard it is to be a human. It, you know, life shouldn't be this hard. And it's hard in innumerable ways. Every single person in my life is struggling with an untold amount of hardship that looks vastly different. And it is present. And I sort of am amazed at how consistent that is. You know, like even the other day I heard from somebody right before the, we went into the lockdown or the first wave of the lockdown, I had just completed sound teacher training and I just checked in with some, you know, of the folks there. And like, even hearing from that group, 
like all of them are struggling. You know, family members have COVID. Some of them have had COVID more than once, like, you know, just really bonkers stuff. And I just, I don't know how to gloss over that. I don't know how to act like that's not, you know, on a micro level impacting me, just knowing the people closest to me are suffering. And then on a macro level, like, really grappling with like the fact that our governor is a predator, right? Which is not a surprise, but also deeply distressing to realize the person who kind of guided felt like a voice of reason for so many months when there wasn't one is a creep, like a pretty well-documented creep. Mm. And that bums me the F out. Mm. It's really tough right now. I am in a similar space. I think it's weird. I mean, I appreciate through this vortex of people that connect us, Janixa and Jeremy being in that like larger orbit. But I think a lot about something that Jeremy posted the other day, Jeremy O'Hara, who's amazing and also a very profoundly productive person in the pandemic era, who posted either or reposted something that said that this moment is not a residency. And I've just been returning to that over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I have these like deep yearnings to be so amazing. And then also some days I just can't get out of bed or it feels impossible to make a cup of coffee. And so it's a lot to reckon with. Mm -hmm. I think one gift of right now is, you know, my purview got really small, right? Like I'm in my five block radius or whatever it is, but I I feel so deeply connected to the people in my life. And like, I'm, you know, understand them in a new way. And I just keep thinking about that's such a gift and I'm not looking for the silver lining of the pandemic. So I hope it doesn't come off that way, but I guess I'm, I'm always looking for places to lean into gratitude. And I think I feel really grateful for the intimacies and the stillness and what it has felt like to slow down. And Kimberly, I love that Jeremy O'Hara's quote because I really did suffer a lot of not FOMO, but I mean, it's always, I always clarify not FOMO because it's not that, but I, I did feel a lot of conflicting things in the very beginning of the pandemic when it felt like, according to social media, everyone was going to learn to die and to quilt and to do all these things. And I went into high gear. I mean, you and I were editing the book through June. I mean, I, I was just like, I don't have a minute to myself. And I actually kind of do now. And I'm so pleased that instead of learning a new language or I don't know, learning QuickBooks better, I'm really just catching up on the MCU. I'm just doing a deep dive on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And like, I'm be- I love Thanos. Like I'm just <laughs> here for your it. thirst for Thanos is <laughs> so unhinged. Fam, let me tell you, when in the beginning of Endgame, when they go to the the planet that he's on, and he's picking the fruits in the garden in his like little rugged wear, and I was just like, "Damn, babe! Like, do you want company or like all he's trying to do is live his life?" and he gets his head cut off. Sorry if that's a spoiler. That movie's like five years old. But I really... <laughs> anyway, I have been working my way through according to the official MCU timeline, not Disney's timeline, but the actual order of events. And it has been so satisfying. It's been so satisfying. And I feel like I, I, I thought maybe I would work my way through the Criterion Collection, which I was subscription to, like, and my friend works for. Like, I thought maybe I would make a quilt and I'm just like, nah, dog, I'm really just finding out like more about Wanda and Vision. And I think that's fine. Like, I'm really fine with that. That is my contribution right now. And it's enough. Kimberly, Marvel movies. I love Marvel. Like that is, (laughs) I am so deep down that well. Um, It is the age of Ultron in this house. Uh, Yes. Yes. No. Marvel really came coming through in the clutch. And Ironheart is coming. Loki is coming. Mm-hmm. All these mini series. <laughs> Black Widow, which I scoffed at, but now I'm just ready for. Like I'm. I mean, I know, I know. She's a tough one, but it's just. <laughs> As long as we don't get more, like, I can't do Captain America. Yeah. Sorry, we just, like, Bogart your po- podcast and turn it into a comic talk. <laughs> I know. No. We're deep TV watchers. Uh, you know what? Are you watching Marvel? I, I have to ask you, too. Where, where are you? What's your position? <laughs> no, I haven't seen any of it. But the amount of joy Marvel has brought you both, <laughs> just in this podcast alone, it's going to make my day. <laughs> but as we close... I wanted to bring in this piece from your book by Rashida Phillips. 
In 2012, she put together this survey of about 10 questions exploring time and memory as experienced by people identifying as Black, African, America, and or Afro-diasporan. I've picked out three questions, and I thought we could sit with them. Question one, what are some of your earliest memories? What images or smells do you associate with it? Mine are always in the kitchen. I'm like, love food. I'm such an eater. And I feel like I always grew up in homes where biscuits were being made, hamburger helper was being cooked, was being asked to try to read. I mean, I think I was very small. I was not reading on whatever was in the back of the box. But, you know, this participatory interaction that took place in the kitchen, it's still my favorite place to be and in my home and other people's homes. So those are some of the earliest memories that I have is kind of standing next to someone's legs, hoping for someone to like pass me down. I don't know, like a piece of meat or something or a piece of a biscuit. Kimberly? It's so funny because I spent my weekend like nomming on things Jenna made. And so I'm thinking so much about home cooked things um, and smells. And it's the same for me. My mom made me meatloaf Mm. and I had it for the first time since like in a decade. And there was something about just like that hit of like, you know, that flavor hits your tongue and you're like, whoa, this is <laughs> like, it's like a, like a, a zoom, like I'm a fetus again, you know, like it's like my whole life flashed before my eyes and it's wrapped around this combination of brown sugar, Worcestershire sauce and ketchup. Mm-hmm. This is good as a time capsule, which I, I like to think of the show as something like that. Mm-hmm. Jenna, you're 38. Kimberly, you're 30. If we're to listen back on this one day. Could you leave a message for your past self? You know, I always, I, I feel like I would leave the same message for myself, which is just, just trust the unfolding. Like everything is happening the way it's supposed to. And I, I kept thinking about something, which is, you know, you have to do it for yourself first, right? And I think in, in life, it's so easy to look left and right and to try to make sure you're keeping up with other people. And But none of that matters. And I, I think that's the thing I, when I reflect back on, my life, I'm like, you were always exactly where you were supposed to be. And you just have to trust that. Even if it felt like you were behind, even if it felt like you were in the wrong place or you should be doing something else. The thing that's always been true is I look back and I'm like, nope, that's that was happening exactly how it was supposed to happen. And I would not be here had I not gone through that experience. And I just have to trust that, that there is some benevolent conspiracy, you know, working on my behalf to get me somewhere new Mm. just to trust it. Kimberly? I'm struggling because I think this has been a really hard personal time where my confidence is at an all-time low, if I'm being completely honest. So I think as a time capsule, I don't fear that feeling because I think there's been so many moments, you know, where you look back retrospectively or like even when you were a teenager and you were like, I was so uncool in high school and you look back and you're like, oh, but you were you, you know? And like, <laughs> that is something special, you know? Um, and the you that you were is the you that survived and, you know, allowed you to be the you you are now. And so I think I want to be like heightened self, but I think right now I'm just in like a really tender moment and mm. um, I'm thankful for the version of myself that is now. And I mm. hope that the version of myself of the future can look back with a tenderness. You know, can I ask you, are you kind to yourself in this moment where you feel low? No, I think it's hard to do that. It's really hard to do that. Mm. I think I'm finding room for it. And I, and that's why I was curious to ask you about what it's like to do this, because there is something in talking to other people that, allows for a slight departure from the moment because you're showing up for us. You know, you're being the best version of yourself to get the best version of us. And that suspension is good and violent. Um, And so it's hard for me when I'm not the person who's doing the interviewing to show up for myself in that same way because my recesses are low, like my energy level is low. (sighs) And I find myself to be the meanest when I'm tired and I'm fucking exhausted. It's not for a lack of not trying and it's not for a lack of uh, respect because I do really respect myself. It's just like right now, 
the first stop on the train is is not kindness all the time. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate you asking because it's mm-hmm. fucking hard, and I hate to admit it, but it's it's a it's not a cute time mm. here. If it means anything, and I don't know if it does, certainly this book is something to go back to. It's five hundred plus pages to go back to, <laughs> and on that, this book is about black futures, but your futures. What kind of message would you want to leave to your future self? I guess be kind. <laughs> yeah. Like, be be kind. nice, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Be nice to your most precious resource. There's only one of us that we know of. I mean, we'll figure it out at some point if that's true or not. But <laughs> for now, all we know. Could you imagine if you're Tamara and Tia's out there? <laughs> or worse, if you're, t- if oh, you're God. you know? My brain, though, was like, time stone. I went to the infinity gauntlet. Like I was just sort of like, unless I have a gauntlet, I can rewind time. Yes. Or if you're the Elizabeth Olsen and then Mary Kate and Ashley are out there, <laughs> who knows? She was in the wings all along. She was in the wings all along. I have along. no idea what you two are talking about. <laughs> Get into it, Sam. Get into it. It's the, it's, it's really important. The easiest way to turn your brain off. Just so you can start with the age of Ultron and then work your way from there. If nothing else, you really will understand how hot vision is from the beginning. Like it's not like a new discovery that the moment the synthesoid vision was created, he was a snack. Yeah. And very important. I I would also say maybe start with WandaVision because there are 30 minute episodes. That's true. Age of Ultron is a three hour movie. Um, So if you do, you can do the whole of WandaVision and the time it takes you to watch one Marvel film. Yeah. And it's it's more about television, which I'm only assuming that you like than it is about, like, it's like the art form of television more than it is like a Marvel thing in the beginning, especially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's about grief and it's about process and it's about, <laughs> I mean, I keep, I'm sorry. I've been thinking about it so much because I, this is not for right now, but <laughs> I just, I really have enjoyed watching something about what it means to live through loss that doesn't. Don't you spoil the last episode. Remind me of the pandemic. <laughs> so it's about living through change and it's about. I don't know. It's it's the most relevant text to me for uh, the Panini that I've experienced. And that really is saying something. <laughs> so you both have convinced me to watch WandaVision. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. But let me reframe this last question. What do you want your future selves to look like? I want to be the best person I can for myself first and then for the people closest to me and trust that it radiates out from there. I think, I mean, I don't know. I think being alive and having a conviction and, you know, supporting yourself and and your community is a revolutionary act. I mean, it's not a small thing and that's, that's really the best thing I can do. And I I hope it radiates out from there and I know it, it does and it has, but I really want to live my life as a good person, which is in itself a contribution. Maybe the more specific thing that would be helpful for people finding your book, which is what does this text mean to both of you now on the other side of publishing it? I would say to answer both of those queries together, I think about how important it is to be a witness and how important it is to be a celebrant of others. Because I think I know that I am not alone in being a person who lacks confidence. I know that I am not alone in being a person who wants to to echo what Jenna was saying, to show up, you know, after showing up for myself, to show up for others. And so I think in one of the greatest successes of this book is the vast kind of spectrum of not only people who are contributing, but ways they're contributing and how spectacular they all are and how that energy of collection, preservation, archiving, sharing, witnessing can be a rubric for others. Because I think that especially when you're thinking about marginalized folks, we're often told that our stories don't matter. And I think it is the work that we did in this book that helps to undermine those things. Because even if there isn't a relinquishing of power, there is a way that you can counteract that with an agency and a refusal of being erased, of being disenfranchised. And that, of course, has to start with understanding just how remarkable you are. Because 
people in positions of power would have you believe otherwise. Mm. Kimberly Drew, Jenna Wortham, thank you both for the book and for sitting with me. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for your time, Sam, and your tenderness. Yeah. Much appreciated. Anytime. Stay safe. our show special thanks this week to the team at penguin random house i'd also like to thank kimberly drew and jenna wortham for coming on their new book titled black futures is available wherever you do your reading to learn more about them and their work visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com you can listen and subscribe to our show on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, our show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Associate producer Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Kevin Kaur. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel and Clarice Guevara. Music by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back on Wednesday with a bonus episode featuring Nathaniel Rich. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.